HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Nona Lim, founder and CEO of Nona Lim, everyone's favorite Asian broths, noodles, and stir-fry kits. Nona pioneered fresh, on-the-go, restaurant-quality meals inspired by her Asian heritage. She's also a certified nutrition consultant and is active in both the local community and the food industry. Nona was the president of the San Francisco Professional Food Society and is currently a board director of the Specialty Food Association. Nona Lim products are available in thousands of stores across the country as well as online. And I am so psyched to have you today, Nona. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> um, I feel like you've been just a great mentor to me, but also to so many um, I, people I know um, in the industry, you know, pioneering the fresh set, helping us all figure out, you know, fundraising and um, always being an incredible resource for, for so many people that are, you know, a couple years behind you on the journey. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, not at all. I, I remember when we first chatted, that was even you pre kind of Chobani incubator days. And yeah. now you're such a seasoned veteran. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know about that, but you know, I know some of the acronyms now. So I sound like, you know, I sound like I know what the hell I'm talking about, but you know, <laughs> does anyone ever really know what the hell we're talking about? Um, so, you know, obviously I do my research um, and I know that you grew up in Singapore um, I know that you lived in London for a while. You moved to San Francisco about 15, 16 years ago. And what, you know, I, I, I love the fact that you had a few businesses that kind of ended up as the Nona Lim that we know today. 
So I think that would be a really great story just for all of our listeners to hear. So tell me about that first one that you started in 2006 and then how it kind of evolved into what we know and love as Nona Lim. Sure, absolutely. Um, So I moved to the Bay Area, as you mentioned, about 15, 16 years ago. uh, And that was when I decided that, you know, I'm kind of... um, I've kind of had enough being a management consultant, being kind of a consulting in technology and software and wanted to do something different. So back then in 06, I started the very first online meal delivery business. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very niche. It's called Cook SF. So technically, you know, I created that category because it was before any of kind of the bigger players that you hear of, like, you know, HelloFresh or Blue right. Apron. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's still so, six uh, years before. <laughs> I know the Blue Apron started in 2012 because they started the year I opened the cooking school. So this was a this was a long time before. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. right? Except that, you know, I kind of did it in a few different ways. One was, you know, it was really a side hustle. So I was yep. doing that, trying to figure it out, trying to understand what that meant. So I didn't fundraise. I was doing it very cheap and scrappy way, which Mm -hmm. probably isn't the right approach if you're trying to kind of build a big online business. But at that time, I I was just testing ideas. I wasn't sure if it was going to go somewhere. And I was kind of distracted as I was a competitive fencer back then. Right. Um, Yeah, so I did that for a number of years. And then I kind of evolved it a little bit more, you know, in about 2009, 2010, uh, created the first food-based detox program. (laughs) (laughs) Again, a little bit too ahead of my time, right? So at that point, I was like working with functional medicine doctors and nutritionists and dietitians, um, looking at the elimination diet, how you can take away all the common food allergens, you know, and go through kind of a detoxification that's based on food. Right. So uh, Not juice. Right. Not juice, absolutely right. not juice. Right. You know, um, so did that for a number of years. Again, had kind of a small niche following, um, but you know, at that time as well, customers would be like, "Well, you know, I've done your program; it's awesome. I've lost a lot of weight, or I've actually been able to improve my uh, triglycerides, my blood pressure, so on and so forth." You know, but is there something that I could continue? Um, eating, you know, without being on the food detox program. So that was really kind of the inspiration back then for saying, you know, what are products that I could actually, you know, put into stores, Mm -hmm. right? And at that point in time, the soups were really stacked on the program and they had the best shelf life, right? Just because um, other dishes on the detox program were things like wild Alaskan salmon with mm-hmm. a miso dressing. It's like, ah, forget it, right? Right, <laughs> yeah, that's like a three-day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and even that three days, it's like, mm, the fish might not be tasting that good. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that was when then I actually just took the, the soups and put them into pouches and did them very manually by hand and just tested them, you know, uh, for a few years. Um, and... What happened was in 2012, kind of things came to a <laughs> to a boiling point when I almost made the uh, London Olympics. So oh, I was right. competing. Yeah, so I was competing uh, in the qualifications. I, I lost by one point in the final bout, so didn't get to go to the Olympics uh, for the So Asian I want to back up a second. I want to <laughs> back up for a second because you were this whole time a competitive fencer. 
So you were going to go to the Olympics for fencing. That, that, that's something I don't know that a lot of people know about you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I, I was representing Singapore. And so, you know, I was kind of, um, it's, it's kind of, a, that's why it's always, there was always a question, which is the side hustle? Is fencing the side hustle or was the first business a side hustle, right? Because right. with, with fencing, you know, I had to be training um, four or five times a week. And I'll be competing usually every weekend or every other weekend. And then every month or so, I will be away, you know, somewhere for an right. international competition, you know, in Europe or Asia. Um, and, and that took a lot of time. But at the same time, you know, my competitors were all like a decade younger than me because I started mm. this much later in life. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, it was definitely interesting. You know, it's, it's about keeping up with them, not just, you know, uh, on the strips at the competition, but keeping up with them from a recovery perspective, you know, because mm. I think that as we get older, you know, it just takes longer for recovery. That's the youth. Yep. 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 And, and that's how and why I kind of started the business as well, you know, which is I, I wanted to eat clean because it actually made a huge difference in my recovery time. Right. Um, and so those two were kind of intertwined, right? Uh, and so I was doing a lot of that. And yeah, and then I, I missed the Olympics, got really kind of frustrated and said, that's it, I'm done with fencing. Uh, had a baby instead the following year. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and then kind of took a hard look at the business. I said, all right, you know, what do I want to do with the business? You know, if right. I want to, you know, do something serious with it, uh, make something out of it, I, I need to give it my full attention. Right. And that was when 2014, I launched the uh, Nonolin brand. Right. So um, by then, I was already testing kind of the soups and pouches for a few years uh, with the detox snacks. And I decided that, you know, I'm going to actually um, keeping a lot of the core elements, which is how do I create products that taste really good, uh, but it's actually healthier, better for you and convenient. It sounds like a no brainer, right, when you look at it. From today's no, it, I mean it's it does it even I mean I guess because we have a similar sort of which we'll get into after the break sort of mm-hmm. issue with sales issue with supply chain like it does sound like a no brainer but it's not the way that the grocery store works and yeah. it and I think it was even less the way that the grocery store worked in 2014 um, which is why I think of you as such a pioneer and so groundbreaking. And, you know, a lot of the guests that we have on or that I I have on, not we, sorry, everyone, <laughs> that, that's embarrassing. But a lot of the guests that I have on, you know, are trying to break through the categories as the grocery stores know them. And a lot of people are coming up on some of the same issues now. Where does it go? Who's the buyer? you know, it would be much easier to just pump and fill rather than like create real flavor. It would be a lot easier to use preservatives rather than, you know, not. Um, I think the, the, the world has definitely embraced it and you and, you know, a few other brands like you have paved the way. Um, but even as intuitive as it sounds, it's still not really fundamentally the way that our food system works, you know? Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. And, and in fact, um, it has been kind of a painful journey paving yeah. the way, right? I'm sure you know that because you experienced it. And that's almost one of the big things that I've learned, which is sometimes, you know, um, 
learning to slow down innovation and learning to really understand where the grocery world is at and, mm-hmm. and trying not to, you know, trying not to just keep <laughs> hitting right. my head against the kind of the wall. You know, that's what I was doing. And then I think I've made some small indentations in the wall and I mm-hmm. think we've kind of made some small holes. But it definitely took a lot of work and it took a lot of time, right? And we can talk about it a little bit later. Yeah. Online has helped, I think, made it easier. But certainly there were and there are challenges when it comes to, you know, um, creating categories. And then, and how did you know, you know, this one? You had, you know, you had the meal kits, you had the, you know, the detox program. How did you know this one was the one and you were ready to plant your, you know, put your flag down and create this brand and this was going to be the one that you were going to go with? Honestly, I probably think that I didn't know in 2014 and there was probably some naivete, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that we all have kind of that sense of optimism and and, um, in wanting to do something. Right. right, and I will even argue that you know, in in when I first started the business, again I was groundbreaking. You know, I created the first um, refrigerated bone broth. Yeah. Uh, before in twenty fourteen, right, before the Brodo article came out in New York Times, right, and, and that was still very very early on. Um, we were the first to launch, uh, ramen fresh ramen at Whole Foods. You know, we were the first to launch and the only ones, you know, for them to be carrying fresh rice noodles right. um, at Whole Foods. And so there were a lot of things that we did where we innovated and were the first to create it. Um, I think that in those days, um, I was fortunate that uh, Whole Foods had a, um, I would say the Whole Foods was visionary and they were very supportive of mm-hmm. innovation and, you know, they were patient and they were willing to give it time, right, right for something to stick. You know, there is a question around, I, I, I don't know if they are as patient today as they used to be, right? Um, but you really need to have partners that are willing to um, work with you if you're yeah. going to be innovating in categories and you have no proven data that you can rely on right. and say, you know, this is how well the category is doing because you're creating something brand new. Um, yeah. Right. Was there a big moment? Like, was there a, like, okay this is it now. Like, did you have one, like one purchase order, like going global with Whole Foods or an investor, or was there something that was like, now I can go in a hundred percent with myself a little bit? Or were there you know, a few things? <laughs> you know, that that is a good question, right? Which is, I think that going national with Whole Foods, I think is definitely a, um, was well, definitely a, a great milestone or you know right. getting a, a rotation with Costco or getting picked up by you know by by Walmart I think that you know for me though is that um what I try to look at these days is about can I generate good velocity without actually <laughs> without having to invest too much in demos and samplings and coupons right. and promotions, and right? Ha- but, and how did you even, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we have this issue though, like we've kind of come up with the benchmarks for velocity that we think, you know, depending on the retailer make the most sense. But even that, even what is, what is quote unquote good velocity, you know, dep- I mean, is it, more, you know, over two units per scoop per store per week? Or like, did you, 
did you make a, if the goal was to generate good velocity without spending a lot on promos and demos and all that stuff, because, you know, everyone knows you can, you can buy customers. That's not the problem. The problem is then Mm -hmm. what, right? Um, Did you set up, did you even know what that litmus was for yourself? This is what I mean by good velocity. And if I hit this, then I know that I've got something and I'll keep going. Or was it not as concrete? You know, I think that, you know, I definitely try to talk to the buyers all the time, right? right. Just what is it that they're looking for? What, right. what does good look like? And, and how are we performing, you know, vis-a-vis the category? Right? I think for me, what was kind of super frustrating back in those days um, was I launched the Hit and Sip Cups, you know, again, a huge innovation. Mm-hmm. You know, because bone broths aren't really in cups, they're not sippable. And so we would be testing in different parts of the store. And I, I remember, remember that. that. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we would be at, um, I think it's Bryan Park, right? Midtown, Whole Foods, and they have a new stand downstairs. And it'd be merchandised with um, with the um, the sushi and the sandwiches and the yogurt and the cold-pressed juices and apps, right? As a grab-and-go item. And we'd be doing phenomenal velocity. You're talking about, you know, over 200 units among four skew, right? So that's right. about 60, wow. yeah. 60, 70 units per week, yeah. right? So that's like crazy. It's over 10 Yeah, that's cases. amazing. Yeah, It's absolutely amazing. And that's even without um, doing promotions or sampling because right. it's such a small space. Um, but when they moved us upstairs, immediately right. that dropped, you know, to literally to a factor of five. You know, you're going down to like yep. 40, yep. right? And then you see that. So, but the challenge is that even though we use data to try to show the bias, we were not always successful, mm-hmm. right? And I think that the biggest challenge that we had being in refrigerated sometimes is that, you know, we're competing with, let's say... Um, Shredded cheese. <laughs> yeah, or cold-pressed cold press juices. Right. right? And, and, and like, like cold-pressed juices and at that yeah. time cold brew coffee um, right. and, and kombucha. And, and their velocity is like, yeah, totally even higher. It's a totally right? different, right? Yeah. No, yeah. I actually really want to get to this discussion because I think this is, and this is where I always call you. Like the, I've called <laughs> you a few different times on this, so we're going to get into it. Why don't we yep. take a break? And then when we come back, we're going to talk about just refrigerated supply chain and all of the joys that come with it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. 
Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. I'm back with Nona Lim. Okay, so we started before the break talking about merchandising. And I think what a lot of people, just to back up, you know, one of the first things when, you know, when I went to people who understood the CPG business, when I was talking about, you know, why are sauces in jars? And all of my students love the idea of these squeezy pouches. And by the way, why are they boiled? And why are they in the middle of the store? They should be fresh. And, you know, I I had all of these ideas. um, And people who were in the know had two fundamental questions for me. One was, who is your buyer? Which I didn't really understand at the time, but we can break down a little bit. Is your buyer the produce buyer? Is it the dairy buyer? Or is it the meat deli buyer? Because those are the only three refrigerated sections, as most grocery stores know it right now. There's also, you know, the ready to drink, but I I wasn't going to be in there. And then the other thing was always about, you know, how do you benchmark? Where does it go? And if you are, and and that's, I said shredded cheese, because a lot of times we end up in this um, plant-based set, which is the dairy buyer. It's a catch-all. It's where they don't know what to do with things like us or Perfect Bar or Once Upon a Farm or Hail Mary. There's more and more things that are not using preservatives that are being refrigerated and they're going into the refrigerated sections, but they don't they don't really have a natural home. So you end up in this catch-all set with a buyer who is also buying tofu and shredded vegan cheese and follow your heart. And we're not going to compete against a follow your heart or a vegan shredded cheese necessarily. So figuring out how to benchmark yourself is also another big piece of it. And early, early on, I remember talking to Nona And I remember that you were doing basically a trial and you put one of your products in three different, and I guess you did this in partnership with Whole Foods to figure out who your buyer was and where it went. But I remember you had them in three different parts of the store in order to sort of evaluate where you did the best and where it made the most sense. And then you were going to use that data to kind of forge the path forward with other certainly with other Whole Foods, but other retailers. And I guess I'm curious about how did that go? Did that work? What are your thoughts now? You know, I know testing is a big part of your philosophy in general, um, but are you seeing more grocery stores have sets that make sense for products that aren't traditionally kind of in one of those groups? You know, what are your thoughts, I guess, on on all of the merchandising? <laughs> go go I know it's such a you summarized it really well you know I would say that unfortunately um even with data it was really difficult to convince to convince the buyer right because if you mm-hmm. think about it the buyer is responsible for the space mm-hmm. and so you know we might find that our grab and go cups were doing really really well with let's say prepared foods but the current buyer has no control over that space. Right. 
that's a different part of the store. And then right. that part of the store might have other motivations, like, you know, I'm doing uh, private labor because I'm getting way more margin from private labor because mm-hmm. um, I'm used to, you know, getting, let's say, 60-70% gross margin from private labor, but I'm not considering the actual amount of labor that goes into it, which actually takes away the mar- margin. The margin, right. Yep, and also the shrink that you get from it, mm-hmm. right? And so then you end up having kind of a, you can't really do a proper like for like comparison and you can't move in that, right? Right. I mean, speaking of that, you know, one of our big things is if you put us next to the salmon, we will sell a lot of salmon, but our buyer is not the fish buyer. And so getting a, what's called for everyone listening, an off shelf is essentially like, if you have your little slot at the grocery store, but you want to also be over in the meat case, or you want to do like a, you know, a burrata chimichurri summer picnic, you know, in a cooler in the middle of the store, that doesn't just happen. A, you usually have to pay for them, but B, when you're having two different buyers from two different sections and one of them isn't making any margin on selling your product, they're just not incentivized, Um, which, I think is really sad and kind of anachronistic. And I think a lot of them are going to have to figure out if they're going to compete with e-com because if you're fresh direct, you can put Nona Lim in 17 different places on the website and you can put us with the meat and the fish and the chicken and the shrimp and the tofu and it's no harm, no foul. Um, haha, that was a pun. <laughs> I didn't mean it to be. Um, but are you seeing any... Are you see? I mean, it, it sounds like it, it, what happened at that time and then what's kind of happened over the last six years and do you have any hope? <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, I would say that the grocery world just moves a little bit slower just because of how they're organized by bias, right? And mm-hmm. then you have the other challenge. Number one is how, how they organize their people and how the people are buying. And then number two, there's also the actual infrastructure, right? Which is we know that the parameter of the store is growing rapidly. That's where the consumers are going to. Right. But there's so much infrastructure needed to actually increase yeah. the amount of refrigerated space. And so yeah. I don't know how quickly they're really keeping up at the store level. Right. Right. So where we have seen success are with the, let's say, the smaller independents because they don't have, you know, rows and rows and rows of refrigerated space. So actually now our products are conveniently um, near all the other things, right? Like, which is, should should our noodles actually be next to pasta? Because that's is, the noodles are a different kind of pasta. They're just mm-hmm. ethnically, you know, Asian noodle versus right. an Italian noodle, right? But And they can be eaten by the consumer for the same use occasion. So yep. why shouldn't they be side by side? You know, and, and we'll see... Yeah. Exactly, right? So again, you know, this is kind of like, whew, thinking of it very differently. Uh, or why should it be with the... Uh, why should the noodle be with, I don't know, sometimes it is with plant-based vegan cheese, right? It's like, hmm, you know, are consumers really going to go there to look right. for noodle? Right. So so those are kind of the things that I think we still grapple with a little bit. I think where we are coming up a little bit better is that we are focusing a lot more on our cook-at-home items. And the cook-at-home items have a little bit more of a natural home with produce, like with your right. products, where, yeah. okay, you know, maybe they're looking to get some of veggies to do a stir fry with and the noodles are a great yeah. compliment. But I would argue that, yeah, why couldn't they be in pasta, right? And we don't have that problem 
online, as you say, right? Because if you go to Good Eggs or Fresh Direct or right. you know a lot of the other online platform, and you search for noodle, noodle. you search for pasta, we yep. show up with the pasta set, yeah, you know, as a kind of noodle, right? Um, or, Same with know, sauce for us, mm-hmm. right? And yep. and uh, we're not you're not like going to the dairy veggie based alternative, you know, <laughs> then finding a sauce and then we're there. You're just looking at sauce and we happen to show up. Um, are you feeling like it's, is it, I mean, I also want to caveat this. I don't know how many buyers actually listen to this, but I've heard that a few do. And I also want to just say, I do feel for them. I'm not saying, mm-hmm. you know, that this is easy on, you know, a grocery store buyer who um, is responsible for a very thin bottom line margin wants to bring innovation in, but if it doesn't, if if it's not going to move quickly and it doesn't entirely make sense, or the the set isn't organized that way, or they just simply don't have enough refrigerated space, you know, you think about them in 2019, they were getting themselves organized and ready for this e-commerce bonanza that was about to happen and sharpening their elbows a little bit to figure out how to keep consumers in the grocery store. Then they were hit with COVID where all they were told to do was like get toilet paper, water and, and rice and just make sure that people could get their basics. And now it feels like they're kind of regrouping and and meanwhile, all of these digitally native and e-com marketplaces have just been popping up, you know, all over the place. It's really hard for the grocery stores to compete. You know, they know what's happening. I'm sure they know what they need to do it, but it's like a massive ship that you need to turn around, you know? No, absolutely. Right. And also it is something whereby... Um some of it needs to happen at the top strategically, right? right? Which is if, you know, like at the top, they have to say that, you know, we want to foster innovation. So we're going to give our buyer the ability to bring in products, you know, as an X percent of the overall portfolio that maybe doesn't do as well, right? Because if they right. basically say that we want the, we want, um, the buyer, we want you, the buyer, to to foster innovation, but at the same time, all your products or your overall portfolio must have this much performance. Mm-hmm. Then there's a little bit of disconnect, right? Then the buyer right. is forced that I have to keep cutting out the the long tail, the ones that's not performing, even though it's an innovation. I know that it needs more time right. because that's how I'm being. My performance is being judged on. Right. Right. I find that also with the women and minority owned tag, right? You hear all of these, all of these retailers are talking, are, you know, starting to talk about, you know, equity and representation and, you know, how strategically this is part of their plan and this is who they want to be and their values. But I question the trickle down to the buyer level because, again, like you said, if it's not part of, the financial piece of the puzzle, the values aren't going to be expressed in the buyer decisions unless they are incentivized to make those decisions. Are you finding that? Uh, yeah, a little <laughs> bit, right? A little bit. So it, it goes back to, again, you know, if they're going to bring in, let's say, uh, uh, um, let's say, you know, a West African ethnic right. cuisine or something like that, where, you know, it's innovative, it's definitely kind of a 
trendy but not fully there yet, right? right. How much time are they going to provide? Are they going to say, you know what, I'm going to give it a whole year. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm going to give it two years to, to build it along, even though the velocity isn't, you know, in the, let's say, top 20% performance, but it's mostly in the bottom 40%. But I believe in that, that would be the trend or that I'm supporting a diversity entrepreneur and I'm going to give them time, right? right? So they, they have to be able to be encouraged to make those decisions. Um, and so, you know, in many instances, in many of the retailers, you find that the diversity um, supplier representative has no is an mm-hmm. influencer, but does not have any decision-making power. Right. And you, you don't know how aligned is that with the actual buyer, right? That is, is there something like, you know, like, for example, Kaiser might say that they want to, they want X percent of their dollars to be totally given to, you know, diversity mm-hmm. uh, suppliers, right? Do, I, I don't know that with the retailers, if the buyers have a hard metric that says you have to buy X percent of your products from, you know, diversity right. suppliers and, and that you know, they might be exempt from certain performance measures in the first, I don't know, 12 months. Right. Right. So that it encourages actual behavioral change because otherwise I feel bad for the buyer because then they're stuck between the rock and the right. hard place. Yeah. yeah. So, so assuming for a second that the stores are going to take a, a, a while, right? We can't really count on them right now. We know that they want to move in a direction that, you know, supports healthier options, fresh options, diverse, you know, entrepreneurs, etc. What what have you found as the brand that has worked? Like what what would you say is your number one go-to when you're having a hard time making headway, either getting into or in a store that you're in, proving that you belong there, um, other than just raw numbers? Or would you say, hey, Allie, guess what? It's raw numbers. You do what you can to get those velocities up, and that's the end of the story because the numbers don't lie. Like, are there are there any tools that you've learned along the way or messaging that you would use with buyers that helps tell the story better? Um, or am I just being, you know, naive? Um, you know, I think that at least the way I approach it now is I approach product innovation slightly differently. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that in the past, coming from a um, software background, the idea is that you have a minimum viable product and it's fine to iterate um continuously right (laughs) right so you have lots of different things you test what work what doesn't work and i found over the years that because cpg moves at a much more different pace it's so much more expensive to launch products um and buyers and investors are a lot less forgiving they, they don't see kind of the fail quickly, you know, fail fast, fail quickly, and you innovate mm-hmm. from there. That, that's not looked at necessarily with that same level of generos- um, generosity in tech. Right. You know, I've kind of really been a lot more thoughtful when it comes to product innovation. And when I think more about product market fit, I, I look carefully at categories as well, which is which category is this going to fit in? Is it going to fit mm-hmm. in? more neatly and you know what sort of price point and and really thinking a lot about that versus just the end consumer right yeah so yeah 
That was one of the things that I really took away from Federico in the Chobani incubator. I remember me, you know, I was telling him about the product and he was like, you have to, you are forgetting something. And, you know, I was like, what? He's like, you are forgetting that your customer is not your end consumer. Your customer is the dairy buyer or the produce buyer. And solving for their problem is very different from what you're used to solving at the cooking school. And it was kind of mind blowing and sort of weird to me. And I didn't really understand it, but it's really stuck in my head over the last couple of years that, you know, I mean, and let's talk a little bit about online, but, you know, for, and this goes back to sort of refrigeration, my theory, you know, maybe I'm totally wrong, but the, the supply chain and the shipping is getting better. I would imagine for you, you've seen a market improvement since 2014, 2015, but it's still, if you're a fresh product, you're likely going to see the bulk of your sales. I, I would say 80 plus percent of your sales from grocery stores, not direct to consumer. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that there's actually a lot more room than I think? Well, <laughs> I think that, you know, things have definitely improved a lot since 2014. There are a lot more uh, players out there offering refrigerated fulfillment. Having said that, you know, it's still always going to be expensive because we have the, you know, insulated shipping, right? Whether mm-hmm. it's compostable or not, it's still very expensive. You still have to deal with the dry ice or gel packs, you know, all of that packaging um, and, and just makes it heavier and expensive. So you're never going to get away from that, right? It might be a little bit cheaper because now they have multiple fulfillment houses or mm-hmm. you can work with someone that has a lot of scale and they can buy a lot of this packaging at a lower cost, but it's still never going to be the same as shipping a an ambient product, right. a shelf-stable product. And so we're never going to get, it would be very hard to get kind of like the, um, the 10x, 20x growth that, you know, um, some... Uh, digitally native brands uh, experience, right, with their shelf-stable items. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, and so because of that, we don't invest heavily in customer acquisition, paid customer acquisition online, because we just don't have the kind of gross margins that, you know, right. shelf-stable product has. But what I have found to be really good is working with all those e-commerce marketplaces, right? right? Yeah. The Sunbasket, the Fresh Direct, and all that, because they have soft for the last mile. So I don't have to invest in all of that, you know, packaging that you have to when you sell directly to a consumer. And yeah. that I have found to be cost effective. Um, and it allows the consumer to buy a single unit and not cases and cases of products. And we found that to be great for actually uh, brand trial awareness and things like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that because it feels like between the 15 minute delivery guys and the, you know, um, e-com sort of marketplaces, they're just new customers popping up every single day. And, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of incoming, we get incoming too. And I'm tempted to, to, to get sauce to all of them. On the other hand, some of them end up maybe being less about volume and more about awareness building and marketing. 
And some of them, I guess, do end up being like really good sales partners, like in our case of Fresh Direct. But Fresh Direct has been doing this and this is their, you know, this is their bread and butter. Um, are you finding that the meal kit, like the, the sort of, you know, I think of Sun Basket, for example, maybe I'm wrong, but I think of it more as like a meal kit that also has a marketplace for things that it can't necessarily make on its own or don't fit into the meal kit. And then in COVID, a lot of these guys really expanded like a hungry route and opened up to a lot of other brands because they almost became like online grocers um, as opposed to sort of more the meal kit model. Are you seeing that there are more and more? Do you think a bunch of these guys are going to go back to their core model now that COVID is kind of passing and they're not going to be as open to having all these other brands and all of the logistical issues that go with that? You know, what, what's your thesis on the e-com marketplaces? And are, are there going to be more like if, for example, Imperfect, you know, decides to, you know, at some point they'll they'll likely IPO or whatever. I guess did they IPO or who no, one of them IPO'd? Right. So if they IPO and then um, you know, there's only so much growth that can happen and they decide to also put other things on or something like that. Like, do you think that we're just gonna see more and more untraditional grocers becoming e-commerce grocers and that's yeah. a good opportunity for us? You know, I think that um like some basket, for example, and other meal kit delivery uh, companies, they will continue to have an e-commerce marketplace because they, at the end of the day, you know, they, they would want to increase the AOV, the average order value, right? And, and they want to make that more efficient because they already have something going to the customer. So they're trying mm-hmm. to address for multiple use occasions so that it's not just for dinner, but, you know, why don't you buy your breakfast from us, buy your lunch from us, buy your right. snacks? from us right um they might not sell your sauces because they say well that competes directly with our dinner kits which we're already selling mm-hmm. right but if you are yogurt you know we're not making yogurt and therefore we want to carry you so i think that that's how they will probably look at it um and so i think there will be opportunity there depending on what kind of product you have and what you're right. solving for right like like whereas i could imagine your sauces doing really great for like the hungry root and the imperfect of the world because they don't have meal kits and so then they need um people to use their produce and use their protein with something easily right, right. and the sauces fulfill that need um for for those products and so i definitely see opportunity there um i think that the interesting question is that at some point there will be winners and there will be losers in this space. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> right. you wanna... I, I want to make sure that we don't like, like, you know, like, you know how, uh, what was it? Manchuria or a bunch of meal kit businesses all went kind of went under yep. in the, right. And a lot of uh, suppliers didn't get paid. <laughs> so you, we will want to be careful, right? right? Really managing that because many, many of them, um, I don't know because so much of the everyone is still private so it's not like you have access to their financials right so you don't really know uh, who's profitable and who's not and how good their cash management is mm-hmm. as they're growing their customers and so are they going to run out um, right. of cash so those are the things that you know we don't have a lot of visibility on but I think that as a small business that's trying to manage our own cash flow that's something that I certainly um, 
uh, want to right. be careful about. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think about that a lot with all of the new 15 minute, you know, I think we had like six pop up in New York just in the last week. And, you know, it's great. And I understand that the model seems to work elsewhere. And, you know, everyone seems to be very well capitalized. But I wonder about their internal structures. But and I and I also sometimes I don't know how to I don't know if I consider it a sales or a marketing. You know, I don't know which bucket I put it in because I'm, I feel like a lot of the lines have blurred. You know, Kroger was always a very easy, that's a sales channel, but Kroger marketplace where you're doing dropship, that seems to be more of a marketing, right? <laughs> like play, like all, I don't, it's, it's, the lines have blurred for me a little bit. And, and with all of these different, I mean, I'm looking at you, you've got, are you on Amazon? Yeah. We're okay. on Amazon because we, we are a, I mean, it's all integrated with Shopify, et cetera, because we, we do all the backend work so that it doesn't right. actually, I mean, you have to pay platform fees, but at least from a backend perspective, the fulfillment process is exactly the same as our website. Right. Right. Um, okay. So it doesn't increase more work for us. But so, I mean, that's, but, and you have, so you have Amazon and you have a bunch of these e-commerce marketplaces and you have traditional grocers. Then you also, you, you do have Costco, which is a whole beast of its own Walmart target. Like there's just so many different channels. Um, I mean, what's your, what's your advice on, thinking about the channels, prioritizing the channels, what, you know, goals for each channel individually. Um, I'll just let you, you can start just talking and, and, you know, I'll interrupt. (laughs) (laughs) I I would love to get a perspective on Target since you're working with Target as well on how that, you know. I mean, yeah, Target, Target's a funny one, right? Because Target can be a meat. I mean, I have friends that targets their number one retailer, um, not refrigerated brands, but, and I mean, in our buyer at Target was one of the most wonderful buyers I've ever worked with. And he just loved pioneering and he loved bringing in new brands and he gave us a ton of leeway and he just, he just left. Um, mm-hmm. So jury's out for me, but you know, what are your thoughts and, and what have you seen be successful and what have you learned and where have you gotten burned over the last couple of years? Yeah. You know, I think that I still need to learn to say no better, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes um, they, you know, um, like they, they might want to approach or, or you know, I've had, some of those retailers approach us and really want to try out, you know, in stores. And I, I am a little bit skeptical about whether it is the right time to go in there. Mm-hmm. And sometimes against my better judgment, I say yes. And then, you know, you find out afterwards that, yeah, it's probably not the perfect fit or it's not exactly right. And then in the meantime, there's also a lot of operational um, challenges that mm-hmm. younger brands have to navigate, right? You have to work with a redistributor to make sure that because they be, they'll be ordering by the layer and not by a full palette. And so you right. could have a lot of freight costs. And then there are a lot of other costs and chargebacks involved as well. You know, very different kinds of charges from um, UNFI, for example. So you have to be ready to really understand a lot of that. 
um, I think again it goes back to uh, product market fit, right? The the more the less innovative you are, and you're innovating for just one one thing, you know, I think it's easier to be really successful. And the more that there is a macro trend driving that growth, the easier it is to to get in there and be very successful. Right. Um, right. So I, I think it's, it depends on your product, right? So I would right. say that with my product, there were just too many points of innovation. Right. You know, um, and, and so when too. we first went into that, right? Whereas, you know, something like a cauliflower, um, like frozen pizza is a very established category. You know, right. it's just... It's, it's, it's just changing it to one a behavior yes yeah. exactly yeah. exactly yeah. yeah you know and, and then you have the gluten-free and the keto paleo trend all hitting at the same time right so you yeah. have a lot of macro trends that can be driving the phenomenal growth um that that is just not around um it's, it's yeah. easier for adoption to take place right, right? Versus something where our products are so innovative and it's a little bit harder for someone to use it. You know, we're solving problems that are slightly different. So I think that we have to wait for the right um, timing, right? Right. Speaking of that, um, I feel like you have, you've been very open and honest with me about fundraising and thinking about, you know, financial partners, um, You've raised money from funds. You've raised money from individuals. You've done Kickstarters. You've done a couple of different types of things. Um, and I'm curious just your overarching thoughts about money and, you know, words of wisdom, um, you know, goals that we should have. You know, one thing I think you and I, talked about very early on, I really didn't want this to be the kind of business where I was just raising money every year and not even so much deluding myself because I know that, yes, of course, I don't want to end up with, you know, tiny bit of my own company, but I just really don't like the process at all. And it makes me really like uncomfortable mentally, emotionally, all of it. Um, and so I've spent time with you sort of asking, like, are there alternatives to, <laughs> to this process? You know, because we've talked about it on the show. You can't you can't go to a bank for this stuff like you're not getting a loan um, until at least, you know, profitability. And even then that's challenging and, you know, all of that. So tell me about your fundraising journey a little bit. Obviously, you don't have to say anything to too personal, but, you know, thoughts, <laughs> thoughts that you've had and, and, you know, maybe some bright spots for people. Yeah. You know, I think that, um, the most recent round with the Kickstarter, that's yeah. really more marketing driven than right. kind of fundraising driven. You know, I wanted to really test, um, the new products to show that there's good product market fit. Uh, you know, with consumers, and I wanted to use that as a way of introducing the products, given that we didn't have Expo or Fancy Food or anything like that. And, and how did you like that? Was that, I mean, because people are doing that more and more, using Kickstarter as a marketing campaign, not necessarily a fundraising campaign. And are you feeling like it, it was a success? I think it was a success for us. Uh, I think that um, I'm grateful to the community, to the CPG community, actually, many of whom really supported us in the first 24 hours mm-hmm. um, and that created a flywheel you know then we were picked up by Kickstarter as a project we love which then you know 
got us a little bit more awareness mm-hmm. um, on their platform and then brought in, you know, other, uh, I would say, supporters, um, Kickstarter supporters that were not aware of the brand, right? But there's definitely a lot of work involved in, in the creation creation of all the marketing materials to make mm-hmm. sure that they look good in the activating of the various communities. So there is definitely work involved, but I'm glad that we did it. And I think it was successful for what we wanted to accomplish. It was also um, helpful to be able to use a lot of that data um, and to share mm-hmm. that with buyers, you know, so that they could see kind of the, the, the consumer desire for the product. So that, I think, um, if you have the appetite for it, I like it, you know, right. we would do it again. I think in terms of other, you know, more traditional forms of fundraising, probably my biggest learning, um, a uh, couple of things, right? Wayne, <laughs> Wayne from VMG many, many, many years ago told me that I should really try not to fundraise until I've hit, you know, a lot more like way past like, you know, the 10 million, 20 million mark before I fundraised. I mean, um, I don't know who can do that. That's, that's, <laughs> thank you, Wayne. <laughs> I think Bethany was close to it, right? So, so she did well. That's why BMG invested in her. <laughs> I mean, my goodness, yeah. Um, and and I, kind of, I kind of can understand a little bit of that, right? So what my, my reflections and learning, having kind of gone through it myself, is that I think that um, VC funding would be uh, most impactful once you've figured out everything and all you need is that rocket fuel to get you to the moon. Right, right. So, I mean, to go back to VMG, maybe VC funding until you're, po- you know, you're after 10 million in sales. Like, you're going to have to fundraise most likely from friends and family or yeah. angels or whatever, but that institutional money, wait as long as you can is is your idea is or yeah, is what, yeah. Or, or it's, I, I think it's kind of like what John Farrakhan said on your podcast which I totally agree with which is you really have to figure out exactly like I think once you take VC money it's harder um that's obviously kind of the, the clock is ticking mm-hmm. you know that there's less of an appetite um for you to kind of try and figure, figure it, it out, out to make yeah yeah that is less latitude to make mistakes and say, well, maybe this shouldn't be done this way. Maybe I'll try doing it that way. And and the kind of a test and learn isn't quite um mm-hmm. isn't quite as you you have less of a freedom to do that. So it's right. better to really figure that out and do all of that before receiving institutional funding. And then you know once you figure it out and you know exactly what to do. Um, you know exactly what to do and how to do it, and you just need the money to help you do it. Right. I think that's a, to just blow it up, like I say, rocket fuel to get to the moon. Right. You know, I think that that's probably a good time to raise, and it could be at ten, it could be under ten, right? Right. Um, how do you know when you're there? I mean, I had kind <laughs> of the same question for him. Like, I, you know, we we joke about how we're. I, I'm not a sports person, but I keep picturing sort of like the bad news bears. And I keep picturing like my team and me and we, you know, we go out on the field and turns out like we're pretty good. And then we get, we think we're pretty good at baseball. Like we're like, huh, we're winning a few games. We're doing quite well. And then someone's like, you should go to the next level. And so we go to the next level and we realize that we haven't even been playing baseball. 
we've been playing some game for like <laughs> kids that is not baseball. We don't have the right shoes. We don't even know what, what the, what the signs are. We've been using a different type of ball and every step of the way, every time we think we figured something out or like, okay, now we've got it. Now we know who we are. Now we know what we're doing. Now we know who our people are. Then we're wrong. Or like, or we realize that we, it, not even so much wrong, but it just changes. It changes so quickly. So I love the idea of, you know, trying to get to a place where we've figured stuff out. I just don't even know, will we know when we get there? Are you there? Do you feel like you know what, when you'll, you know, when you'll have figured it out? And, and what does that mean to you? <laughs> And then the pandemic hits, right? I mean, right. <laughs> I, I think that um, again, what was you know what was really telling um, with your podcast with um, with John because I literally just listened to it uh, <laughs> over the right. weekend, and the big takeaway for me was that even for a someone who is a veteran like him, right, which yep. is just amazing, with a celebrity, amazing yep. celebrity, yeah, it took him three years to kind of figure it out, mm-hmm. right? Um, so what more, you know, first time entrepreneurs or less experienced entrepreneurs like us Um, and and I think that what I guess what he did well was he did raise sufficient money so that he could have time to figure it out Mm -hmm. and to make changes but I think that where it gets tricky is um is if we fundraise but we don't have enough runway and then we are trying to figure it out and then we run out of cash and now we can't raise the next round right this is where I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall into that problem Right. So, so the the question could be, you know, could we get money from a more patient, friendlier source who is willing to help us figure out or who knows that, you know, as with all businesses, there will be mistakes made and there will be lessons made. And the question is, you know, could we have the foresight to raise enough money so that, um, and not spend it too quickly so that, Mm -hmm. you know, we, we have a buffer for, for learning and pivoting. Right. Right. So, so I think those are some of the, um, yep. the lessons from hindsight, I would say. <laughs> and, and specifically, is there anywhere you wish you would have spent more money or anywhere where you wish you would have spent less money? Like anything you wish you had invested more in? Yeah. You know, I think that, um, I think what's interesting was that I recently saw kind of, um, you know, uh, Chris from Propeller shared some just data about, you know, businesses that have done really well and have been very capital efficient and mm-hmm. what their kind of breakdown of P&L looked like, mm. you know. Uh, and one of the things that stuck out to me was that, you know, businesses that were not very capital efficient had really, really high GNA, right, which mm-hmm. suggested to me that they probably hired a lot of very... Um, High paid consultants, right. Or expensive senior hires. Right. Okay. So I just want to break it down for new listeners. So, or for people who are not in knee deep in a financial model, which is totally understandable. (laughs) The GNA is the, you know, the, the headcount essentially, as well as, you know, the office space. It's like the, it's not marketing. It's not, um, you know, operations, it's sort of all those general, I think it actually stands for general and administrative, I think. Yeah, general administrative. Um, Uh Costs. So, you know, 
if you are a very young company and you are making $2 million in sales, you should likely not be paying, I think what Nona's saying, you shouldn't bring in, oh, this guy was the CEO at blah, blah, and I need to pay him you know, $200,000 a year and a bonus and all these things. You should try to get, get, that person might not get you where you need to get fast enough. And is that kind of what you mean? Like you, you want to, you want to be a little scrappier on the people side? Yeah. You know, I think you're exactly right. Right. Which mm-hmm. is, so for example, like your, your heads of finance or your head, the COO, and a lot of the senior people will go in there, right. Versus your selling expenses versus your marketing expenses. Right. Um, and, and so the challenge is that, you know, I was just sharing with a, a younger brand as well, who, you know, um, did raise institutional capital and is doing well. And, and so it's kind of on, it's hiring new people to add to the team, right? And and the thing is that um, all this new hire, if they're the right fit and you hit your revenue numbers and you do grow, they could be a huge asset. Mm-hmm. But but if they happen to be not quite the right hire or if there happens to be some friction with your, you know, product market fit or something mm-hmm. else, etc., um, and you don't hit your numbers, then that will be a huge, right. huge cash. Right. Rate, right. And yeah. That's, and that's the, always the biggest fear. Yeah. No, I mean, we, we very much sort of abide by the hire the outsourced team at a retainer. And then get to a certain point in sales and then hire, you know, the full-time person. Like, and I think a lot of people right now are trying to hire a growth person, for example, whereas like I'm like agency, agency, agency until the very last minute that I have to. And that comes with its challenges too, right? You know, agencies don't, they're, you're not their only person. They don't live and breathe the brand the way that someone in-house would, but I think people get excited and hire quickly and it does end up eating away at, at your numbers, you know, and, and your, and your burn for sure. Okay. So is there anything you wish you had spent more on? That's a good question. You know, I think that um, probably we have invested more on actually the branding part mm-hmm. from a brand perspective, mm-hmm. storytelling perspective earlier on. Yep. That makes sense. Okay, my last question. Normally I would ask, you know, words of wisdom, famous, whatever. But for you specifically, I want to ask about fencing. And I'd like to know... Are there any lessons from your years and years of, you know, Olympic level fencing that you have layered on to founding and running this company? <laughs> yeah, there's so, so many things from fencing that is absolutely applicable. Right? I think that just the discipline and the grit, right? Mm-hmm. Where you day in, day out, you're training whether or not you feel like it, right? So I think that 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 grit and that discipline to just keep going, uh, even when things aren't going well, and I think a lot of that comes from fencing. Um, I think that the desire and the urge to win, that competitive nature, definitely mm-hmm. comes from fencing. Um, I think the third one would be you know just also be the ability to compartmentalize and be hyper focused. Um, mm-hmm. is a big thing, right? Because I'll be fencing and. 
um, I maybe I didn't get the point I should have gotten because right, you got to put it aside. Yep. yep, I have to put that aside and I have to focus on the next point so I don't lose the next point because I was thinking about the last point. Yeah, yeah, right. So a lot of that, you know, I have to transfer it over, um, as well, right? So then yep. other things like tension control, you know, or I might be, a lot of times, you know, I'll be fencing. Let's say you know Russian world champion, you know two times Olympic gold medalist, um, <laughs> and if I think that it has happened before when I'm fencing all this, you know, like like they are ten years younger, they train three times a day and they train six times a week, yeah, six days a week, right? And and they've got a great results. If I go in thinking that oh my gosh, I'm so intimidated, mm-hmm. I will absolutely lose, right? If I go in with a different mindset that say you know what, I'm going to give it a good fight, I can do this, right? So it's just that whole mental framework. Yeah. Maybe I would still lose, but at least I would have a chance of winning if I'm not already thinking about losing, yep. right? Amazing. And, and, and so I think that that's kind of the mindset that I have to have as well with the business. Um, if you're competing against, you know, big CPGs and so on yeah. and so forth and not or being just intimidated. Not, not getting a win, you know, we get addicted to the wins. And then, I mean, I've gotten a little bit depressed when I feel like two, two no's in a row, whether it's an investor or a buyer or consumer review. I mean, you can, you can, they, they're like gut punches, you know, and not riding on every one of them. Because if we do that, we're going to, you know, going back to your line about recovery, it's going to just be a really hard recovery. And the wins Mm -hmm. are just not going to be as frequent as the, as the loses, the losses. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right Nona I thank you so much this was I knew this was going to be such a great conversation and of course it was I'm so happy that we get to see more of each other in the DEI stuff that we're doing with Chobani and I'm so grateful to you for just being such a great mentor and supporting this community thank you so much for coming on the show Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And everyone, if you haven't, I'm sure all of you have heard of Nona Lim, but if you haven't, go to nonalim.com and go to the store locator. They're in so many stores um, all over. And um, Amanda, thank you for engineering as always. Um, Sorry, I'm a little over time. And all of you listeners, thanks for listening. Um, Glad this is, you know, helping or at least giving you some some things to think about. And um, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.